Welcome to episode 11 of Shadows of the Empire, Strategy, Rethink, and Campar. Malaya Command's withdrawal from Northern Malaya began ringing alarm bells in Singapore, London, and Canberra. The outposts of the Empire were always going to be manned by a skeleton crew, but it, ex- but it was expected that the forces there would be able to forestall any invasion until reinforcements could be routed into theatre. But the fall of Northern Malaya by mid-December was faster than anything the planners of London expected. Brian Farrell estimates that even in this late date, Singapore's fall was not foretold, but would require London to abandon the Germany First strategy and immediately route into theatre two infantry divisions, an armoured brigade, and six squadrons of aircraft. And importantly, all of them needed to be veteran units. The Royal Navy's Eastern Fleet would also need five capital ships and air power to check the Japanese. And to top it all off, these reinforcements had to arrive by mid-January in order to meet the Japanese for the showdown at the gates of the Singapore Naval Base. Now, it should be clear this was never going to happen in December 1941. Not only was the Germany first strategy just confirmed with the Americans who had just entered the war, Britain lacked the excess shipping capacity to move that many combat units around the world in the required timetables. So if routing this kind of support was out of the question, what did Churchill decide was feasible? By December 12th, Churchill set out his vision to defend a Malay barrier, a line running from Burma through Malaya-Singapore to Java and to northern Australia. Empire forces would need to hold this line for six months until a strategic counteroffensive could be planned. As far as reinforcements, the British 18th Infantry Division, now en route to Egypt, was to be immediately rerouted to Singapore. With this decided, Churchill moved his attention to other matters. Nevertheless, the relentless Japanese advance forced a further rethink. By December 13th, the Royal Navy began assessing Singapore as an untenable position, and by early January, the fleet had withdrawn to Java. Malaya Command would then be defending a naval base without a fleet. Even with the 18th Division en route, the army continued ringing alarm bells as the collapse in northern Malaya continued, leading to more promises of men. Two raw brigades of the 17th Indian Division, along with reinforcements from Australia and India, would be routed to Singapore to arrive in early January 1942. Coming with them would be some 58 Blenheim and 52 Hudson bombers, alongside 99 Hurricane fighters. While this sounds impressive, S.W. Kirby describes them as, quote, the equivalent of a physically unfit British division, two almost untrained Indian brigades, a number of partially trained Indian and Australian reinforcements, and aircraft which could but be a wasting asset, unquote. The hurricanes heading east would, were already modified for desert operations. They would need to be converted for the tropics and would, and would in large part be replacing one-for-one buffalo fighters, which were expected to be ground to dust by the time these reinforcements arrived. In addition, the air crews operating these aircraft were largely inexperienced. The Australians, watching with horror as the Singapore strategy collapsed, began pressuring London to do something. On January 6th, it was agreed combat-experienced Australian divisions would be routed to Malaya from the Middle East, along with the British Armoured Brigade. However, as you no doubt can see on the calendar, these units would only reach by the end of February, weeks after the decisive battle with the Japanese was, was expected. Nevertheless, the logistical levers would be pulled and units would begin sailing east. Perhaps a lesser known but even more intriguing option to reinforce Malaya Command was brought to light by H.W. Brands in his magisterial biography of President Roosevelt, Traitor to His Class, The Privileged Life and Radical Presidency of FDR. Brands recalls that after the American entry into the war, Churchill traveled to Washington to begin his first formal conferences on strategy after Pearl Harbor. A planned one-week stay in the White House turned into a three-week visit, 
with both world leaders building a warm and personal relationship while almost living as roommates. FDR often visited Churchill's bedroom to chat, and both men spent time discussing strategy over cigars. Roosevelt had a reputation as a bartender who made very stiff drinks. Ideal for Churchill, who had a reputation for drinking very stiff drinks. It was during this trip that the shattering news of the sinking of 4C was reported to Churchill. In the gloom of this enormous loss, FDR proposed routing American reinforcements to Malaya instead of the Philippines to bolster the beleaguered Douglas MacArthur. U.S. forces in the Philippines were already being pushed into a small pocket, precluding an ability to reinforce them. For FDR, in that case, it only made sense to route American troops to Malaya to stop the Japanese march south there, if they couldn't reach the Philippines in time to save MacArthur's men. However, when Churchill's military secretary recorded this conversation in a memo and circulated the idea that American troops would be diverted to Malaya, the idea infuriated senior American commanders. Generals Arnold, Eisenhower, and Marshall all balked at the idea of sending American troops to save the British Empire, while American troops in the Philippines were staring at death and surrender. Secretary of War Stimson recalled in his diary that, quote, My anger grew until I finally caught up with Hopkins. That would be Harry Hopkins, FDR's right-hand advisor during the New Deal and now the war. Told him of the paper and my anger at it, and I said that if it was persisted in, the president would have to take my resignation, unquote. When Hopkins raised the issue with FDR in the presence of Churchill, both men walked back the proposal. As Brands, as Brands recalls, quote, Roosevelt apparently had realized his mistake even as he denied making it, and Churchill was sufficiently gracious and farsighted to cover for him, unquote. In the meantime, what should Malaya Command do? After Jitter and Garun, Churchill recommended Malaya Command to pull its tail in, withdraw to Johor, and defend the Straits and naval base directly. With the Japanese controlling the sea, they could land anywhere on the Malaya coast, nullifying any forward defense. He suggested by all means delay the Japanese, but defending the base was now paramount. This is something akin to an Alamo plan. As we've discussed before, this strategy has a large weakness built into it. By ceding all this territory to the Japanese, Singapore would be isolated. The Japanese would be able to stage aircraft close by and could, in conjunction with its navy, more easily blockade Singapore, shutting the door to any reinforcements heading to the rescue in January and February 1942. Percival made it clear to the chiefs of staff that he was going to do the exact opposite of Churchill's plan. He would force a major battle as far north as possible and to keep the Japanese as far away from Singapore as long as possible. The chiefs agreed to this plan, adding the caveat that Percival was not to unduly destroy his units, particularly 11th Indian Division, ahead of the arrival of the reinforcements. Churchill was facing pressure not just at home, but pointedly from Canberra. General Gordon Bennett had had on his own informed the Australian government that Malaya Command was in dire straits, which led Australian Prime Minister John Curtin to make an extraordinary public declaration. Quote, Without any inhibitions of any kind, I make, it cl- I make it quite clear that Australia looks to America, free of any pangs as to our traditional links or kinship with the United Kingdom. We know, that the, we know the problems that the United Kingdom faces. We know the constant threat of invasion. We know the dangers of dispersal of strength. But we know, too, that Australia can go and Britain can still hold on. We are, therefore, determined that Australia shall not go, and we shall exert all our energies toward the shaping of a plan, with the United States at its keystone, which will give to our country some confidence of being able to hold out until the tide of battle swings against the enemy. Unquote. Japan, at a stroke, had undermined the whole British Empire. Curtin had publicly told Australians that he lacked confidence in Britain's ability, ability to defend Australia, 
and whether it would sacrifice itself to save Australia. And instead, here, a British Dominion would look to the United States defended from the Japanese. This was a splash of cold water right into Churchill's face. In response, he agreed to the return of the Australian combat units in the Middle East, and now it became clear that the army had to stop the Japanese, for its success hinged the whole credibility of the British Empire. As Farrell says quite simply, quote, to keep the empire together, Malaya Command must fight to hold the naval base, unquote. One postscript to, one postscript to all this, the Malaya campaign and Australia's turning to the United States rever reverberated for years into the future. As the Cold War began to take shape, Australia and New Zealand would enter into a collective security treaty with the U.S. in 1951 known as ANZUS. The pointed exclusion of Britain from this treaty wasn't unnoticed in London. This shift in global power can be drawn all the way back to the disastrous events of December 1941. Now back to Malaya. With the grand strategy settled, the question of the defense fell to General Percival and 3rd Indian Corps Commander General Heath. Heath sought reinforcements from Johor to shore up the 11th Indian Division after Chitra and Garun. After weeks of heavy combat, 11th Indian was battered. Percival, however, denied the request as it would weaken the Johor line, robbing Peter to pay Paul. Heath then suggested that if he couldn't be reinforced, perhaps the Indian Corps could be withdrawn to the Johor line. His front line would be narrowed, naturally concentrating both Indian divisions, which could then for the first time fight alongside each other as a corps and also fight alongside the Australians. As I mentioned earlier, Percival, perhaps quite rightly, saw this as a move that would deny the use of Singapore itself to Malaya command. Farrell sums it up as, quote, Heath looked downwards. He wanted to place his corps in a better tactical position, lest it be defeated in detail. Percival looked upwards. He believed a strategic retreat would leave his army isolated and thus doomed, unquote. Third Indian Corps was thus given an impossible mission, to resist the Japanese as far north as possible, as hard as possible, but not to be destroyed itself. It could expect no reinforcements and couldn't shorten its front line to consolidate both divisions. If these conflicting aims confuse you, they did nothing less to Heath himself. Even with this mission agreed, Percival and Heath disagreed on pacing. Heath wanted Third Indian to take large strides south, fight in well-prepared positions, and fall back in detail to another prepared position, perhaps using fighting patrols and demolitions to slow the Japanese along the way. Percival, on the other hand, wanted Heath to fight for every single bend of the road, every crossroad. He wanted to give up as little territory as possible without a fight, prepared position or not. In the end, Farrell concludes Percival may have been willing to give more ground than he communicated, and Heath took shorter strides than he wanted to. By, by mid-December, both men at least reached two decisions. The 11th Indian would plan to stand to at Kampar on the Parak River, and the next fallback position was to be along the Slim River. With that, the stage was set for the Battle of Kampar. Road to Kampar with all the doom and gloom of the Malaya campaign, which involved an extended retreat of hundreds of kilometers, there was an exception. As the 11th Indian Division withdrew south from Garoon, the 12th Indian Brigade, Percival's own command reserve, and one of his three best brigades, were given orders to screen the withdrawal south, imposing delays on the Japanese. Unlike at any other junction in the campaign, the 12th Indian fought an entirely different kind of war, utilizing its training in the bush. Tiger patrols of three to five men were set up to infiltrate and harass Japanese columns, frustrating Japanese efforts to outflank and infiltrate defenses themselves. Armored cars were used to great effect around which patrols could pivot into the bush. 12th Indians stationed strong units on flanks to counterattack Japanese units when they attacked frontally, and conducted shallow flanks themselves. Farrell relates that on two occasions, Japanese units found themselves sandwiched by the Argyles and Punjabis incurring 
serious casualties. The two-week campaign by the 12th Indian should be mentioned as the kind of war Malaya Command should have been fighting all along. However, recall 12th Indian Brigade was unique in its experience and training in the bush. The other brigades in the 3rd Indian Corps couldn't fight this kind of war all of a sudden. In addition, 12th Indian Brigade were given unique orders to screen the Japanese and give ground, to kill as much of the enemy and, as possible and buy time. The rest of Malaya Command was expected to fight and hold on to territory, to fight for square footage, not fight against the enemy and in the process to keep as much distance between the Japanese and the naval base. This distinction was key in the difference, an approach that would mean there would be no switch in strategy for Malaya Command as a whole. Having said that, Malaya Command was approaching the coming battle at Kampar differently from previous engagements so far. Whereas previously Malaya Command was fighting to stop cold the Japanese offensive, Kampar and the coming engagements were to be sighted on favorable ground to inflict as much damage to the invaders as possible, and to withdraw in an orderly manner to the next position to repeat the exercise. With this new approach, 11th Indian Division also had a new commander, Brigadier Paris of the 12th Indian Brigade, who had replaced Murray Lyon with the hope that he could impart his bush experience to the severely demoralized and undertrained division. Operational orders were circulated emphasizing roadblocks, covering areas by fighting patrols, dispersing vehicle pools, uh, to stockpile supplies in the instance of units outflanked, and disrupting enemy lines of communication. Now, had 11th Indian Division drilled hard and imported training in peacetime, these operational orders may not have been necessary, but Paris was trying to make up for the division's shortcoming on the gallop, with the Japanese hot on its tails. A lot was riding on Kampar. If the point now was to buy time for reinforcements to reach Singapore, Malaya Command was to fight long defensive bat battles, forcing time and casualties on the Japanese before pulling back and repeating the exercise. The army stockpiled supplies at the Kampar front for a 10-day battle. The stage was being set. On December 29th, the 12th Indian Brigade was, were being chased by the Japanese tanks as they crossed the bridge over the Kampar River and withdrew behind the 28th Indian Brigade manning the defenses. Their long fighting withdrawal had bought Malaya Command precious time to dig in at Kampar and ready themselves, and the brigade was dispatched to Bidor, south of Kampar, to refit after 12 days of continuous combat. Kampar was chosen for its exceptional geography. The town was sited at the confluence of Road Number 1 and the railway line, with the settlement itself on the southwestern slope of a large mountain, the Gunong Bujang Malacca Mountain. For the Japanese advancing south from the direction of Ipo, the defenses looked formidable. The mountain stood imposing on the way, with jungle directly abutting the road into town to the east before rising steeply up the feature. To the west were wide open fields in an area called the Sicily Estate combination of land cleared for tin mining and rubber plantations. This wide open area was an excellent killing field for well-sided artillery, and Malaya Command would ready two artillery regiments for exactly that purpose. The newly acquired 4.5-inch howitzers and 25-pounders would be sighted to hit probable areas of concentration and ingress. As Percival describes it, quote, Fields of fire for small arms, except in the Sicily estate area, extended up to 1,200 yards and more. Artillery observation generally was good, and from forward OPs on the slopes of Gunong Burjang, Malacca, it was an FOO's dream. Unquote. In the way of the Japanese advance was the amalgamated British battalion, where survivors from the East Surreys and Leicestershires were combined, holding three ridges ahead of the town. In an arc west of the town were the remaining units of the 15th Indian Brigade, in the form of three Punjabi battalions, holding pos positions in case the Japanese got past the British battalion or flanked through the west braving artillery fire. In reserve was an amalgamated Jat Punjabi battalion, 
being held back to be used to counterattack the Japanese or plug holes in the defenses. Note the large role played by amalgamated units, with survivors from various units being put together to make up the numbers. At this stage in the campaign, 11th Indian Division's cohesiveness was already ground down, but to its credit, the amalgamated battalions performed relatively well. Were the Japanese to try and flank the British position at Kampar entirely and try to go around the mountain, they would run into three Gurkha battalions of the 28th Indian, Indian Brigade, which were defending the ring road around Kampar. All in all, Kampar was a defensible position, despite the fact that by this stage, the Imperial Guards Division had finally joined the Japanese 5th Division on its charge down the west coast of Malaya. Malaya Command, for the first time, would, would fight a battle of its own choosing, playing to its own strengths, with its men dug in, backed up with superior artillery, and in a position the Japanese couldn't infiltrate or flank easily. Battle of Kampar the advancing Japanese column chasing the 12th Indian Brigade narrowly missed the prevention of the demolition of the Deepang Bridge north of Kampar on December 29th. Lucky for the Japanese, the river was fordable and the demolition wasn't going to buy Malaya Command a whole lot of time. Once across, Japanese reconnaissance units then pushed in both directions, east toward the Gurkha Brigade guarding the ring road around the mountain and south toward Kampar and the prepared defenses. Besides pushing an outpost unit of the Gurkha Brigade aside, the Japanese momentum to the east was slow to a crawl. As Percival recalls, quote, On the front of the 20th Brigade group, there were many local encounters which ended very much in our favor. Here, for the first time, the Gurkhas were matched against the Japanese in conditions of terrain familiar to them, rough, hilly, scrub-covered country, and there was no question which was a cleverer fighter. Their supporting artillery, the 155th Field Regiment also did excellent work, and the losses inflicted on the enemy were heavy, unquote. Accurate gunfire rained down on Japanese screening units probing the defenses on December 30th and 31st, with nowhere for the probes to exploit. The sloping mountain to the east of Kampar town prevented a Japanese flank to the right, while the open killing field to the west prevented a flank to the left. In a change from the previous weeks, the Japanese had to bring forward both mortars and medium tanks to launch a deliberate attack, instead of just chasing Malaya command units forward. Yamashita, running into a brick wall, committed a regiment to attack Kampar frontally, while sending the 42nd Regiment out west to find some cover from the British guns and a path to flank British defenses. Over the first two days of January 1942, the Japanese 41st Regiment concentrated their attacks on the three ridges held by the British battalion, raining down mortars and even resorting to bayonet charges on both mornings. The fighting was crucial at Thompson's Ridge up front, with the Japanese attempting, attempting to turn the right flank on the ridge through the mountainous jungle. On New Year's Day, the Japanese succeeded in turning the flank, but were quickly evicted by a timely British counterattack. The next morning, the Japanese succeeded again in turning this flank, with the, Jap with the British battalion commander signaling the need for reinforcements to counterattack and evict the Japanese again. British artillery rained down on the Japanese attackers, pinning them down. At this stage, Yamashita had few available forces to exploit this hard-won advantage, with the 41st Regiment nearly fully committed on its frontal attack on Kampar, and the 42nd Regiment detached west in a goose chase around the whole British position. Uncharacteristically, the Japanese were attacking frontally with no pressure for the flanks or rear. This comes to the crucial opportunity of the battle for Malaya Command. For really the first time in the campaign, Malaya Command succeeded in stopping the Japanese advance and forced them to commit to a battle playing into British strengths of dug-in positions, adequate artillery, support, and because of the thick vegetation, Japanese aircraft were less effective in spotting and strafing. With Yamashita fully committed, Farrell argues Brigadier Paris should have ordered the 28th Indian Brigade, east of the mountain on the ring road, to put in an, an all-out attack toward Depang, putting pressure in the 41st Regiment's rear.
and the Jat Punjab Battalion in reserve at Kampar to sweep forward from the British held ridges and attack frontally. Perhaps this pincer would have caused enough pressure for a Japanese withdrawal, if not facing being surrounded and destroyed. Nevertheless, this is a moot discussion. Paris instead ordered the 28th Indian Brigade to fall back along the ring road, and the brigade reserve was never committed in force. A Jat Punjab company brought forward to bolster the British battalion on New Year's Day was ordered to attack the Japanese-held positions on Thompson's Ridge, leading to its mauling. A Sikh company from the former 1x8 Punjab was next committed to a counterattack at the ridge. Once again, the attacking company was largely destroyed, but through a dramatic charge in the Jap- Japanese positions, the ridge was retaken and the British lines restored. Percival describes this episode in his book, quote, And finally, when the enemy had captured a key position and the battalion reserves were exhausted, there was a charge in the old traditional style by the Sikh company of the 1x8 Punjab Regiment. Through a tremendous barrage of mortar and machine gun fire, they went, led by their company commander, Captain Graham, until he fell mortally wounded, and then by their subadar. The situation was completely restored, but only 30 of this gallant company remained. The Battle of Kampar had proved that our trained troops, whether they were British or Indian, were superior man for man to the Japanese troops, unquote. While his men may have proved their mettle, Percival's officers were lacking in initiative. Instead of seizing the moment and ordering a brigade-sized attack, Paris committed his brigade reserve in penny packets through company-sized attacks. The Japanese were able to cut to pieces. Keep in mind that the Indian battalions holding the Ark to the west of Kampar had so far not faced Japanese pressure, with the 42nd Regiment not able to flank west of the British line. Had Paris decided to commit his reserve, this would have been an opportune time to actually push the Japanese back. So the question is, with Malaya Command in a rare tactical advantage, why didn't Brigadier Paris exploit the situation? Farrell answers this riddle. Quote, The reluctance to make a really powerful attack, if it meant leaving little in reserve, even when there was a good reason to hope a real punch might be decisive, was a habit British commanders simply could not shake. To execute his boldest plan, Paris had to be ready to risk, risk an entirely different battle at Kampar, a full-scale melee. Such a fight would have allowed him to annihilate the 41st Regiment in the pincer movement, but which, which could have also been a brawl from which he could not disengage. The inherent tactical caution of these, this army, the tendency to use companies when battalions were needed, made a melee unlikely." Unquote. Paris's overarching orders were not to allow the 11th Indian Division to be destroyed at Kampar, which dictated he could never take full advantage of the situation to potentially smash Yamashita's frontal regiment. Given the resistance Yamashita faced at Kampar, what was his next move? A more conventional commander would have halted the attacks on Kampar, rested his men, brought up artillery and support services to try again. This breather would have risked the Japanese losing momentum and giving Malaya command more time to dig in and more crucially allow reinforcements to get that much closer. No. Instead, Yamashita would further cement a legendary status by thinking completely out of the proverbial box. Remember those rafts and watercraft captured during the fall of Penang? Those watercraft, along with landing boats brought in from Japan, were the backbone of a small fleet that the Japanese would now put into use. Small bands of saboteurs, sometimes sized at no more than a few dozen men, were to be landed down the coast, south of Kampar, to sow confusion and to ambush supply lines. Yamashita then ordered the 11th Regiment of the, new, of the recently arrived Imperial Guards Division to land by water south of the British defenses at Kampar near Telek Anson by the mouth of the Parak River on January 2nd. What the Japanese could not do on land, flank the British lines, could now be accomplished by sea. In one sweep, what limited success the British enjoyed at Kampar containing the Japanese was neutralized, and suddenly the, defen- the, the defenders found their rear threatened. 
As Percival recalls, quote, in the evening, 12th Indian Brigade Commanding Officer Stewart reported that he was being attacked by about a regiment and that he doubted his ability to keep the enemy from the main road at Bidor for more than 24 hours. It was that report which forced the decision to withdraw from Kampar, though it was doubtful whether our position there could have been tenable for much longer in any case. For with no reserves in hand, we were still in a position of being unable to accept major losses, unquote. Imperial Guards troops not only thrusted east to cut the trunk road and trap the 11th Indian Division at Kampar, but also south along the coast, further attacking Malaya Command, rear echelon troops, and lines of communication. With this single move, Yamashita unhinged the iron door Malaya Command had placed at Kampar. Paris was thus forced to order the recently rested 12th Indian Brigade back into action to contain the Japanese landings and to buy time for the now forced withdrawal from Kampar. The British battalion, still holding the four ridges north of Kampar, had to then disengage with the Japanese at night on January 2nd and retreat. Like a zombie climbing out of a grave, the IJA 42nd Regiment, which had tried to flank west was being and was being held at bay by artillery, came out of the bush and immediately began chasing the withdrawing 11th Indian Division. Japanese troops were in Kampar by midnight and were hot on the heels of the retreating Empire units. Once again, Malaya Command was desperately withdrawing and facing Japanese troops in the rear lines of communication. The dust settles at Kampar. So what to make of Kampar? The mauling the 11th Indian Division inflicted on the IJA 41st Regiment was enough to knock it out of the campaign. Yamashita withdrew the regiment for the rest for rest and refit, and it wouldn't participate in the invasion of Singapore. While no official casualty counts were released by the Japanese, Japanese newspapers estimated 500 men lost in action at Kampar. Malaya Command fought exactly the kind of battle it wanted to, fixed defenses taking advantage of geography, well-sided artillery, and conditions that in some part neutralized Japanese advantages in tanks and aircraft. The success at Kampar was a boon to morale for 3rd Indian Corps, as the usual script was changed for once. But this turned out to be a temporary blip in the campaign. As 3rd Indian Corps Commander General Heath related, quote, Morale was now so high that I actually expected that we might, perhaps, push forward. And I was not alone in that thought. Our morale had taken another dent from the order to withdraw. We had retreated again just when we had just begun to believe that the tide was turning in our favor, unquote. While the immediate threat from the sea forced Paris's hand in withdrawing the 11th Indian, Purcell admitted post-war that Kampar could not have been held much longer either way. The 41st Regiment did have a fingernail grip on the British defenses at the ridge north of Kampar. It is sometimes difficult to grasp that despite the brutal fighting at Kampar, it was in large part a battalion-sized defense by a division prior to withdrawal. Paris's inherent caution resulted in him holding back his reserves and a failure to exploit any success at Kampar. He kept back the Punjabi battalions holding an arc west of Kampar, expecting the IJA 42nd Regiment to come out of the bush. And when, and when he did feed in reserves to counterattack, Paris dispatched companies from the Punjab Jab Battalion instead of the battalion as a whole. This hesitation was mirrored with the Japanese landings as well. Kaushik Roy argues that the Japanese landings on the coast need not have led to the 11th Indian to pack it in, had Paris kept a strike force from his ample reserves to drive the Japanese raiders back to the sea. The Japanese had not landed in large numbers at first, and a determined drive could have protected the trunk road from being cut, and allowing the British defenses at Kampar to hold. And given that the Japanese ran the same play over and over again against Malaya Command, Roy's suggestion applies to more engagements than just Kampar. And that's where we will leave it this episode. Alarm bells ring in Allied capitals after Chitra, and wheels are in motion to reinforce the garrison defending Malaya and Singapore. 
Malaya Command seizes the opportunity to fight its version of an ideal battle with ample artillery and, un un and unflankable positions, determined to maul the Japanese for 10 days. Despite grievous casualties, Yamashita exploits British caution with an outflanking maneuver from the sea, further cementing his reputation as a Tiger Malaya and forcing a British withdrawal in four days. With that, we sign off. The intro to Shadows of the Empire is Highland Laddie, courtesy of Bagpiper Germany on YouTube. Thank you for tuning into Shadows of the Empire. Please subscribe wherever you're hearing this podcast, review us on iTunes, and follow us on Instagram at shadowsof underscore the empire. Thank you.